Welcome back to Mission 150. We're glad to have you with us. I'm David Trim. I'm Director of Archives, Statistics and Research for the General Conference of Seventh-day Adventists. And I'm Sam Nevis, Associate Director of Communication. Today, we're going to talk about Africa. David, who was the first Seventh-day Adventist in Africa? And I presume here it's West Africa because it's the closest to the United States. The first Adventist in Africa was Hannah Moore, who we talked about, of course, just a few weeks ago. But she was a missionary who left after only a few years, and it seems that though she did good work while she was there, she left no lasting impact. And if I remember correctly, she was a, a, a Christian missionary, not an Adventist missionary as she went, but then she became an Adventist there, or is that, she, am I thinking of someone else? No, no, she came back to the United States briefly for uh, a break, and she became converted to Adventism while she was there, and then she went back to Africa, and even though she'd been sent by a different denomination, she started teaching the Seventh-day Sabbath, which of course made them unhappy, and so she had to return. And this was before we sent Andrews to Europe, right? That's right. This is in the early 18 and mid-1860s. Wow. But as I say, she, and we talked about this with Bill Knott a few weeks ago, um, she did teach the Seventh-day Sabbath and she won a few converts, but it seems nothing lasting uh, survived her departure. The first indigenous believer in West Africa and the man who marks the beginning of a long-term Seventh-day Adventist presence in West Africa was a man called Francis Dolphin. And interestingly, he predates the sending of the first official Seventh-day Adventist missionary to West Africa. Well, how does that work? Tell me more about him. Francis, Dol Francis Dolphin was from Apam, a coastal town in the central region of what today is Ghana. It's believed that his grandfather was a Dutchman who worked in what was then called the Gold Coast Colony, a colony of Great Britain. But uh, Francis's grandmother and his parents were all indigenous people. Very little is known about him before his conversion to the Adventist faith in 1888, except that he was a trader dealing in rubber, palm products, gold, and cotton goods. His first contact with Adventism was through his friendship with a man called William Dawson. Now, both men were descendants of Europeans who worked in the Gold Coast. They were Methodist Christians and they were merchants. Hmm. Dawson had traveled to America where he became a Seventh-day Adventist. He shared it with his friends, including Dolphin. And initially, Francis Dolphin was not convinced. He didn't see why he should leave the Methodist church to embrace what he thought of as a one-man church until he received a tract about the Sabbath from a sea captain in 1888. Um, he then corresponded with the source of the tract through his address printed on it. So here again... We have media. At the time, the latest media were these tracks, the printed, the small printed stuff. That's right. Not full books or or not, you know, uh, journals or magazines, but tracks. You know, here is, so, is it would be the equivalent of a Facebook post today, perhaps, or something <laughs> like that. A little, lo a long Facebook Longer. post, a long Facebook post. But it's not a bad analogy. And of course, the church was printing books, of course, um, as well. But uh, the things that got sent around the world were these short pamphlets. And what would happen is that Adventists would give them to friendly sea captains, the captains of merchant ships, and say, would you please distribute these when you arrive in your destination port? Now, how many sea captains just toss them overboard? Um, we don't know. Um, it, it seems remarkable that anyone was converted through this mechanism. We know that in Barbados, which we're going to talk about next week, um, 
the sea captain actually just left the, the pamphlets as a stack on the dock. Whoever wanted it could pick it up. Right. And you'd think, well, sure, you know, who's going to pick it up? But people did and, and got converted. But there were sea captains who seemed to have distributed them, even though they weren't Adventists themselves. Hmm. So, it, you know, you look at it and you think, is this really an effective means of reaching people? But we know it was because people did join the Adventist church as a result. But yet they are using the best form of media that they have that, you know, the the church has limited means in the 1870s and 1880s. It's taking all their resources to send missionaries first to Europe and then in the 1880s to South Africa and Australia. Um, so how can you reach beyond those places? You give literature to captains of ships and ask them to hand them out when they get where they're going. So there are two technologies here. One are the tracks themselves, the pamphlets, and the other are the shipping lanes because that you know they are tapping into a network that was created i presume as a result of the industrial revolution perhaps you're the historian you yes. tell me what no, impact no, that had you're right because of the industrial revolution and the creation of trading routes more widespread trading routes of course maritime commerce goes back thousands of years sure but uh it the industrial revolution does lead to uh, new trade routes being set up. But what also is is a factor here is the creation of European empires. Mm. So as European empires establish their colonial outposts and they start to spread in the second half of the 19th century, they get connected by sea trading routes. And of course, you've also got the innovation of steam power in the mid 19th century, which means you can actually schedule uh, shipping uh, before that, you're you're left up to the vagaries of the wind, and it might take you months to get somewhere. It might take you weeks. Just it's it's all down to luck. With steam power, you can say it's going to take us this many days to get from London to New York, hmm. or from London to Cape Coast, which was yeah. the port in the Gold Coast colony where Francis Dolphin lived. Uh, and so you can actually program shipping as a res and so there's a great. Uh, explosion in maritime trade because of the conjunction of all these factors. And I, I was reading as part of my research for a different project that uh, our our time zones were defined as a result of the trains needing to be synchronized and find its own stations. And that was, I think, at the end of the 19th century or, you know, it was happening there. in the late 19th century. Yes. So this is this is an era of of, of great technological innovation. Um, but and globalization, because now everybody needs to be synchronized. That's exactly right. And around the same time, Adventists are trying to reach the world with every means possible. Right. And they're doing it. And so Francis Dolphin in the Gold Coast, in this small town of Apam, reads this tract. He's talked with his friend, William Dawson, who's told him that he's become an Adventist. And Francis decides to convert. And then he decides to share his newfound faith throughout the Gold Coast. Um, and Francis is remarkable because he's zealous, he's committed, and he displayed a special interest in literature evangelism, perhaps because he'd been won by literature himself. From 1890, he corresponded with the International Tract Society of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. This would be the predecessor of what today we would call the Publishing Ministries Department. Before 1901, there were no departments. There were a variety of societies, which were actually strictly, in, in theory, independent organizations, and they did their own thing. I did not know that. And in, in 1901, when the church reorganized uh, and restructured, one of the things that they did was to 
turn societies into departments so that they were much more closely aligned with what the official church was doing rather than being off doing their own thing. But the International Tract Society was very vigorous. And so from 1890, Francis is corresponding with Mrs. Jesse Wagoner and with Pastor Lawrence Chadwick. And they send him more tracts. They send him magazines and books. And Francis takes these, he teaches biblical truths to his family, he teaches it to his neighbors, and they gather to study on Sabbaths. And so then he says, can't you send some uh, a, a missionary, a, a pastor, because of course he's a Methodist, he's aware of the concept of pastors and elders and so forth, can't you send somebody to teach us, to teach us more truth rather than what we're just getting out of the books and magazines. And that led to the visit of Pastor Lawrence Chadwick, who was at that time, I think, president of the International Tract Society. He visited the West African coast from Dakar and Senegal to Accra on the Gold Coast in 1892, but he just passed through. Nevertheless, he goes back and says, you know, we've got this wonderful opportunity here. Um, And Francis... How long would a trip like that take? Oh, multiple weeks. You've got to sail across there. Then you've got to go through the interior where there weren't any railways as yet. So that's going to be a... I mean, he would have gone by sea from Dakar to to the Gold Coast. Okay. There wouldn't have been a, a means of traveling through the interior at that time, or at least it would have taken, you know, maybe months, Much longer. To, months to do. Mm-hmm. Um, when he's there, Francis appeals to him for missionaries to be sent to live and work among them. Hmm. So, okay. And then, and then, what? How do they develop the 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 mission? Is that what it's called? The the you know, because you have missions, basically Catholic missions for centuries. Yes, and that are Protest- established somewhere, and, and then Protestant missions. Protestant missions are in West Africa by this time. Does the concept? Do we borrow that concept from them? Like we have a station here that we're going to. That's what Adventists start to do. Yes. Okay. So that's that's the model that Adventists borrow. Um, Of course, the first missionaries go to Europe, where you don't have the idea of a mission station so much, but you have people based. And it's interesting, in West Africa, as in Europe, the first official Adventist missionary didn't go to start the work completely, but went to join people who had already been converted. We talked about this when we talked about Andrews, and it's the same in West Africa. There's this small group who've been converted through reading Adventist literature and then working amongst their neighbors and friends. Um, this is this leads me to the to the insight that it, it is not it is not normal for you to read a pamphlet and come to the conclusion that your life needs to change completely. And now, because Advent, there isn't a part of your life that Adventism doesn't have an opinion about. Right. So it's not an easy process of restructuring your life in that way which means that mission is necessarily a supernatural process where the Holy Spirit has been working on you for a long time. And then the pamphlet is just the latest, you know, communication from the Holy Spirit that convicts you. Right. I think that's right. And we know Francis was a devout Christian already. He wasn't uh, a practitioner of what we today would call African traditional religions. Back in the day, they would have called them heathens or pagans. We Mm. don't use that kind of (laughs) verbiage nowadays. But uh, of African traditional religions, he was already a Christian. He was already interested in biblical truth. He was, and I think the Holy Spirit had been working on him, and he was seeking uh, the Holy Spirit. Um, but anyway, so you have this 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 group of believers already established. October 3, 1895. So five years after Chadwick visits, it takes the church a while. Mm-hmm. 
And we've talked about this before, how the church is often slow to respond. And some might say, why is it because they're not keen on missions? By this time, they are. As we talked about right back at the start, initially, they weren't. It was mission will go to America and to foreigners who've emigrated to America. Mm -hmm. But by this time, by the 1880s and 90s, Adventists are very keen on foreign mission, but it's a matter of the resources. And you're trying to support Adventist missionaries in Europe, in Australia, in South Africa. Asia uh, as well, or is that later? Not yet. Not yet, okay. Well, 1889, you have Abram LaRue go yeah. as the first missionary to, to, to China. But he's self-sponsored. Self, he's self-sponsored, and he's the only one for some time. So mm-hmm. the church is, isn't really supporting it, but it's got these pockets of missionaries around the world. Um, where do you get the resources from to do all these things? So I think that's probably the reason they're probably quite keen on expanding to West Africa. But there's another thing, and we're going to come back to this point several times, which is West Africa is notorious for being a bad place for Westerners to live. It has the reputation of being, this is what they would call it back then, the white man's graveyard. Because there are all kinds of uh Tropical diseases, malaria, blackwater fever, dysentery, typhoid, a whole range and and other ones that just weren't well understood and hadn't been identified. Um, And at times, you know, you read about missionaries suffering or or dying and it just says from fever. Well, what? We don't, they didn't know. We don't know. So a high rate of death for missionaries in, in West Africa. Right. So it may also be, and West Africa already had this reputation of being a place that was dangerous to go. Mm-hmm. So that may have also been a factor. But eventually after five years, October 3, 1895, a party of six landed at Cape Coast, the port on the Gold Coast. It was led by Elder Dudley Upton Hale. And he was accompanied by three other missionaries about whom little is known. G.P. Riggs, who was a coal porter, as they said then, a literature evangelist, we would say today. Two nurses, George and Eva Carr. And nurses are often among the first missionary parties to go to places because, of course, Adventists have a strong emphasis on medical mission. Yeah. The right arm of the work, as Adventists start to call it. So we send nurses and doctors very often amongst the first party or very soon after to new places. And the car, the cars also had their two children with them. So there's six in all, four adult missionaries and two children. David, we talked about this. I can't remember exactly where, but I remember you mentioning there were teams that went in other parts of the work too. When, when the church sent, it wasn't just one. They sent um, um, medical missionaries alongside them. And I, I think you mentioned a teacher, perhaps not. But the idea of, of team, teams in mission, you know, you're, yes. you're going to this particular place, but you're not alone. It's not just the pastor and, and his family or her, at that, at that point, his family. Um, but you have these teams. Do we still think in those terms today or not really? Well, today, Adventist missionaries usually go out to somewhere where there's al- work has already been established. I see. And so they're joining an all existing party. But the... This is an area where we're sort of learning from our predecessors. Mm. Missionaries very often get sent out just as one or or as a couple very often. Mm -hmm. Um, And then they're isolated. And what we're recognizing is that especially where you're starting new work, missionaries need to go in teams because they have to support each other. And so the church at the moment has uh, a new mission initiative just about three or four years old in Tokyo 
funded by the General Conference called Mission Unusual Tokyo. It includes Japanese, but it also includes foreign missionaries, a couple from Brazil, some from America, because the church in Japan is very faithful and committed, but it's very small. And so they don't necessarily have the the complete skill set for this, what is an attempt to plant churches in the middle of Tokyo. And Tokyo is a, is a very different place yeah, than, other, than other parts of the world. Yeah. And very difficult to work in. So yes. setting up this new mission initiative, we recognized that we couldn't just send one missionary couple. We had to send a team. So there's a team of several missionaries, people who've come from other countries, but who've done intensive study of Japanese language and culture. Wow. You've also got Japanese people. So you've got a team working. So that's uh, somewhere where our predecessors really worked things out very well as to what a good way to work was. So we have these missionaries, George, Dudley, and, and the others you mentioned. They stay there for a few years. Uh, then well, what happens? Well, not so much. No? Unfortunately, things didn't go well very, and they went badly very quickly. Mm. Uh, a later missionary wrote, 20 days had not passed after their arrival before Elder Hale was stricken with black water fever. Oh, goodness. He recovered, but by mid-1896, within eight months of their arrival at Cape Coast, which, remember, was October 1895, within eight months, both of the car's children had died. Oh, no. And Riggs, the coal porter, had been sent back to England for treatment of dysentery. Now, Riggs wanted to go back, but despite treatment, he never recovered, and he died in Liverpool on January 8, 1897. So from his arrival at Cape Coast to his death in Liverpool was just 15 months. How did the church deal with this? Because they, they thought, they, they believed and they knew God was behind this and God is the healer. But here you are, missionaries are dropping. Yes. And, and it doesn't seem to be working. How did they reconcile their faith with those struggles? That's a great question. Um, and we know from the way early Adventists write about missionary tragedy, um, about missionaries dying, um, they're remarkably accepting of it. They accept that they're going to dangerous places. They've gone there knowing that. They've asked God to take care of them, but they've gone there knowing that these are dangerous places. When they write about somebody dying, there's usually a degree of, you know, why has God allowed this? But what they always pivot to is saying, you back home, you need to support mission more. And we need new people to come out to take the place of those who have fallen. So it's a fueling, it's, it's the old missionary, um, the old... Well, it was the martyrs, but in this case, not so much martyrs, but, you know, their their sacrifice yes. and their faith inspires new and newer generations to do the same. Absolutely. And as we'll see, there's really a quite a bad toll of, of, of disease and, and death. Um, but there's never a shortage of new people willing to serve. That's and that's it, it. it is amazing, Sam, because this is an era when... Church members are subscribing to church papers and reading them. The Review, Adventist Review and the Signs of the Time in particular. Well, it was called the Review and Herald, then we'd call it Adventist Review today. But the Review and Herald, usually just known as the Review and the Signs of the Times. And these are publishing the obituaries of, of dead missionaries, sometimes with a little bit of grueling detail about how they suffered in their final days. So people are reading this, and yet they're volunteering to go as missionaries. So it's... Um, to come back to your, your question, there's, there's, there's a degree of confusion as to why has God allowed this, but then there's a recognition this, I think, to put it in my words, this is a sinful world, bad things happen, um, will be with God for eternity. Uh, 
But in the meantime, we need new people to step forward. This can't be the end. This person's death can't be the end of the work they were doing. We need somebody else to come to step forward. And I'm sure the sacrifice that Jesus made for us must have also been in the background because the partial story is that it was a failure. Right. You know, his disciples run away, he died, uh, but then everything is recreated. And there is, at that point, 1900 years of history of of missionaries and martyrs who gave their lives to spread this message. So they're not alone in that sense. No, I think there's, you can see the, the things in Christian history and theology that would lead people not to be as discouraged as they might be. I think the people on the spot and their family members will, obviously it's a, it's, it's a blow and it's discouraging, but for the church as a whole, this is just a hurdle that has to be overcome. And I think there's the knowledge, as I say, that West Africa is a particularly dangerous area. And there's the knowledge, in fact, that the rest of the world is dangerous. Okay. Um, the, the other thing to, to say, too, is that, of course, life expectancy, even in the West, wasn't as long then. There's no antibiotics. There's all kinds of things. But this is an era of great uh, scientific exploration and discovering of the causes of, of diseases, discovering bacteria and, and so forth, and how to, you know, how you can counter certain things. Um, but life expectancy isn't that great, even in the West. And so people are accustomed to their friends and loved ones. Yeah, they're accustomed to friends and loved ones dying young because it happens. I see. So I think today we'd probably be more shocked than they were because they were more used to early death than, than we are. For us, that's, okay. that's, that's an extraordinary and un, an unusual thing. For them, it's not so much. I, I'm not, again, I'm not wanting to say that they take it in, in their stride and they're, they're completely unshaken by it. No. Because, but they don't give up either. They don't give up. Well, the, the Ghana now has a very strong Seventh-day Adventist presence. Um, I've been there. The churches are on fire. Well, someone must have gone there later, and it must have worked at some point. So what happened in Ghana? So, well, actually, of that first party, we've already talked about Riggs, who's gone back and died by the spring of 1897. So 18 months, they are suffering repeatedly from blackwater fever. And so on April 16, they too sail for Liverpool, back in England, um, having worked for only 18 months. So Hale is the last missionary left of the party of four adults and two children. There's one left. And he actually writes back to church leaders very forlornly and says, I am left alone with the work here. Now, that's not true because, of course, he had Francis Dolphin and the other local believers. And so there is a little bit of degree of, of, of Western prejudice there, mm. a, a discounting of local believers, um, but also probably... The poor guy is suffering really badly from illness. He, and loss. And loss. Of, he's been abandoned by his, his colleagues, some of whom have died. Even though he has the local believers, he may not be seeing them in, enti- in an entirely balanced way. And he wants to convince the brethren to send more He wants more, absolutely. So it's the absolutely. strongest argument possible at that point. Absolutely. In November of 1896, Hale visits Francis Dolphin in Apam and spoke to him about joining the Adventist workforce. So Hale is open-minded enough to say, okay, we can't rely on missionaries now because they're all, they're mostly gone and I'm not well. Let's use the local people, which is the secret to missionary success, actually. That's, hmm. there's a lesson from 150 years of Adventist missionary history. It's that the secret of success is mobilizing local people. Um, and Francis Dolphin accepted, and he became an official full-time worker for the Adventist Church on January 1, 1897, together with another indigenous believer, George Peter Grant. 
Dolphin and his two sons, Isaac and Fred, together with Grant, were baptized as Seventh-day Adventists by Dudley Hale on March 27, 1897. So they've actually been, in their own minds, Seventh-day Adventists for nine years, but now they are finally baptized into the church. I wonder what took them so long. I I think that it probably is that Hale doesn't is there is this discounting of local people i see and hale when he arrives probably thinks we have to do it all and he's also located in cape coast a pam is it takes some time to get to uh, this they've created a mission station exactly as you were talking about this is going to be our mission station this is where we're going to work um and it takes him a little and, and he's dealing with his own repeated illnesses the illnesses and deaths of his colleagues. Um, it, but it is a curious thing that it takes them uh, 18 months before he actually has the first baptism, even of these people who have been practicing the certainly the Seventh-day Sabbath, maybe not all the other doctrines. They're not immediately ge- geographically near. They don't meet every week. No. That's probably why. That's, know, that's, I think it that's it right. It takes him that, uh, that little while. But it's a lesson to missionaries today, too, that God is already working there. And right. you need to tap into what God is already doing. Get on board with what's yeah. already happening. And, and don't think it's only down to me. Mm-hmm. Because as you say, God is working. And very often, especially today, there are local believers and they are doing good work. And you know, use that, mobilize them, work with them. Yeah. Okay. But, but anyway, Hale by this time was already suffering. Now this, his black water fever is passed, but now he's suffering from chronic malaria. So on June 3, 1897, he sails for England. Remember, he only arrived in October 3, 1895. So June 3, 1897, he sails for England. He'd been a missionary for just 21 months. Now, he did recover, and he then went as a missionary to British Guyana, today's country of Guyana, on the shore of the Caribbean Sea. The other side. The other side, exactly, from West Africa to the West Indies, Mm -hmm. you might say. Okay, so what happens next? Because now his dolphin is alone, right? Right, and dolphin takes up Hale's work. He proclaims his faith tirelessly with almost no assistance. And he is the one person doing this work for six years because Hale, having been to Guyana, returns to the Gold Coast um, in March 1903. Meanwhile, Dolphin had been managing the mission farm that Hale had secured. So you see, Hale is doing exactly what you said. He's setting up a mission station. He's setting up a mission farm. He's bought some land. He's got the, you know a, a place for Adventist mission to be based. But for six years, there are no Adventist missionaries in Ghana. It's down to Dolphin. And he manages the, 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 the farm and does it very successfully. And when Hale returns in 1903, he soon suffers again from chronic malaria. And so again, he has to leave the country to restore his health. And this time Hale didn't return. But, you know, we can acknowledge him for the boldness, the courage, mm-hmm. the endurance that he showed, um, risking his life and going back after he yeah. knew he'd been so ill. He doesn't die. But he suffers a great deal, and so we can, you know, we and we ha- do have a, a photograph of him, um, and he looks very drawn. He looks like he's uh, he's been unwell. So we can you can you can literally see from the evidence that we have, um, the toll that this has taken on him. But two years later, you get a new Adventist missionary arriving, not in the Gold Coast, but in Sierra Leone, in Freetown, which is the big British port. 
the big British colonial base in West Africa at that time, because Ghana was still in the process of development. So it was mm -hmm. Freetown and Sierra Leone. Um, the missionaries were David Caldwell Babcock, his third wife, Wilhelmina, and their children. I'm familiar with the name Babcock. We have a large university in Nigeria. Is that a presumed the same family? Absolutely. It's named after David Babcock, in okay. fact. Yes. Babcock had previously been a missionary for five years in the West Indies, but from 1905, when he arrives in Sierra Leone, he spends 12 years in West Africa. First in Sierra Leone and then in Nigeria, which is why the university in Nigeria is named after him. Um, and even though he's not based in Ghana, he is coordinating mission for the Adventist Church right across West Africa. Not every country, because at that stage we didn't have a presence in the French colonies of the, the, of the French Empire in West Africa, but we have a growing presence in the British colonies where you can work in, in the English language with the colonial officials and, and it's easier for, for Americans. Now, in January 1906, Francis Dolphin goes to Sierra Leone to assist David Babcock as a coal porter, as a literature evangelist. So Dolphin actually having been the first Adventist in West Africa, the first Adventist worker in West Africa, is also the first indigenous West African missionary because he's the first to work in a foreign country. Now, he doesn't work in Sierra Leone for that long. We don't know why, but um, he is the first West African missionary. And then eventually new missionaries come to the Gold Coast and France has served as a translator for them as they spread the gospel message. Okay. So what happens with uh, David and his wife? Mina. They don't die. That's the good that's, news. That's not there. Okay. <laughs> Because 12 um, years they stayed, right? That's, they stole, that, that's quite a long time. They stayed 12 years, and uh, they must have been in robust health before they went. Um, and for that matter, uh, I think we can say that God must have preserved them, perhaps because we don't know why God preserves them and not others. But to last that long is, is quite an achievement in that day and age. But it is humbling to acknowledge that even though not all missionaries to West Africa died, most were seriously ill several times. And more missionaries begin to arrive in the region, but Adventist missionaries were regularly evacuated temporarily to Freetown for treatment of whatever diseases they had. Now, Freetown in Sierra Leone was not itself the healthiest location for missionaries or Europeans or Americans, but it was a large port city, so it had better medical facilities than existed in Ghana or Nigeria at this point. And that was one reason that Babcock makes Freetown the headquarters of the West African mission, which covers the whole of West Africa. Um, Babcock also set up what he called a recuperating station in the Canary Islands for missionaries who were seriously ill or exhausted because the Canary Islands being out in the, the Atlantic, it doesn't have, it has a, it has a better climate for Westerners and it, it's a healthier climate. It doesn't have the same number of fevers. And so it's a place that missionaries can go for a while to rest or to recuperate if they're suffering from serious illness. Wow. But, I mean, some did die. Briggs is the first to die, I should say, but he's not the last. In May 1908, two new missionaries accepted a call to serve in Sierra Leone, Thomas and Catherine French. Both of them were teachers. So, <clears throat> you're beginning to see the diversification. Yeah, we had the pastors, we had the nurses, now we have... Now we're having the teachers, teachers. and they're setting up schools. They arrived in Freetown in August 1908, so three years after Babcock arrives. Mm -hmm. 
Both of them suffered from malaria while they were in Sierra, Sierra Leone, but they survived for two and a half years, during which they both taught at church schools, while French also pastored the Freetown Church, because Babcock is traveling and doing mission, you know, missionary work, coordinating as well. So French pastors the Freetown Church, and they trained local people to serve as missionaries elsewhere in West Africa. Late in 1910, they get asked to move to the Gold Coast. They get asked to move to Axim, which is site of a mission school where they arrive soon after New Year 1911. They had been there just a few days when on January 17, 1911, Catherine was, quote, taken ill with a severe attack of blackwater fever, which is how Thomas describes it in her obituary, which he wrote. So she died from that. She died after just one day. That's how virulent some of these diseases were. She died on January 18, 1911. And her obituary, we were talking about this, it gets published in the Review and Herald, the church's main journal. Mm. But in addition, in the review, Thomas published a short article entitled West Africa's Appeal. And in it, he expresses the bewilderment, the distress, and yet the determination typical of many Adventist missionaries when they're confronting the death of a loved one. Mm. This is what he wrote. As I stood beside my dying companion a few days ago and realized that my own strength was fast failing, in my perplexity, my mind turned to my brethren and sisters at home who have so nobly supported this cause by their prayers and by their means. And the question came forcibly to me, what can this crisis mean? Have our dear people forgotten to hold up the hands over the armies of Israel? That, of course, is a reference to Exodus 17, 12, which describes how when Moses lifted up his hands to God in prayer, the Israelites were victorious in battle against the Amalekites. When he lowers them, the Amalekites are winning instead. And so Aaron and Hur hold up Moses's arms so that he can keep praying. And and he holds up Moses's arms and the Israelites win a victory. Anyway, so that's what French is describing. Mm -hmm. And what he means is he's just is that. He's relying on the believers in America to be praying for him and, and for the missionaries. That's metaphorically lifting up their arms. And then he continues, we appeal to our people at home to support the languishing hands of our workers in these heathen strongholds. Brethren and sisters, seek God earnestly in behalf of his cause in West Africa. Wow. So th- he finds meaning in his wife's death in the same mission that brought her death. Yes. It is unbelievable. Yes. It, it, it's, it's, I, it, it's such a powerful testimony um, for us today. It really is. It's, you know, if there may be some bitterness against God in his mind, but he certainly doesn't express it. As you not, very nicely say, he finds meaning in this, even in this tragic event. Mm. Um, So even in his grief, he's thinking of the cause of mission, but losing a spouse is hard to come back from. And a colleague wrote how Elder French was greatly reduced in vitality as a result of overwork and the sad experience he was called to go through. So there's a recognition even at the time. It's it's traumatic. And so he's exhausted. He's exhausted mentally, spiritually, and physically. And he left the Gold Coast in February. Remember, his wife dies in January and he returned home to regain his health and he didn't come back to uh, to the Gold Coast, to Ghana. So it, th- here is a lesson to missionaries today in, in whatever capacity. Uh, your faith 
does not equate to overcoming trauma without its appropriate treatment and rest. Yes. So you go through trauma. There's no point just, you know, okay, I'm going to, my faith is going to carry me through, but I'm not going to take care of, of my mind. I'm not going to take care of my body. I'm not going to go through therapy. They didn't have that at the time. But coming back home would have been you know, yes. appropriate at that point. So you have this, um, for him, the fact that you are faithful does not mean you will not have the consequences of the trauma that comes from that mission or experience. Absolutely. And it's interesting, actually, they didn't have counseling back then, but French probably you know, went back. He would have talked with his family, maybe with an experience, but he may have had a kind of counseling, not the sort of structured counseling, but he would have had the physical rest. Um, he would have had the emotional support from, from from all of these things. And the interest to retell the story over and over again, which is the essence of, of counseling. If, if you're not going to revisit it, you can't, there is no therapy. You, you, you can't work through the, the, the trauma of yes. it. Exactly. So, so, mm-hmm. so I think that's right. I think that's, um, you put your fi- finger on an excellent point, Sam, which is that, um, you know, at times we want to be heroic, but we've got to understand, you know, that, that exhaustion and trauma, ill health, uh, psychological difficulties all take a toll and God wants us to do what's necessary to get through them. Yeah. And this reminded me of, of Jesus in Gethsemane, who is going through the greatest anguish probably than any human has gone through right. up until this point. He's, he's sweating blood. That's how traumatic that experience is. And all he wants are for his disciples, his closest other humans to pray for him. And to be, oh, yes, to watch with him. Yeah. So the, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Yes. Uh, we left the Savior even in that moment alone. Yeah. But I can see that here. You know, will the brethren not support us with your prayers? Will you, you know, it's that feeling of being alone as opposed to having a whole community that is praying for you and, and yes. leading with God for you. That's, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So who else goes? Well, to replace Catherine and Thomas French at Axime, they have called, they call two lay missionaries, C.E.F. Thompson and his wife. And we don't know what his name was. We only know his initials and we don't know his wife's name. Okay. We know a little about Thompson though. He was Jamaican. He was black. He was well-educated. He was a skillful writer because he writes for church publications. And we also know from a studio photograph of him that he was a very stylish dresser. He was very snappy. Um, so he, uh, he, he's, an, he's an interesting character, and I wish we knew more about him. He had served in Sierra Leone in 1908 before being sent to Axim in the Gold Coast in early 1909. Um, he helped to found and, and he, he taught in Adventist schools, both in the Gold Coast and in Sierra Leone. And though he was not ordained, he was a successful soul winner. There is a wonderful photograph of Thompson with David Babcock and what was called the Nisimba Church, taken on October 1909 when Babcock visits the Gold Coast. What I like about it is that very often in early mission field photographs, you have the white missionary or missionaries seated front and center with the indigenous people around them often standing. So they're in the place of honor. They're in the place of significance and other people are standing in their presence because these are the important people. In the 1909 photograph from Simba, Babcock is seated front and center, but so is Thompson. So you actually have a black missionary in the place of distinction. Yeah, that's interesting because missionaries were often white. 
Yes. And now you're usually white. Right. Up until the 1920s and 30s when they started to send um, African-American missionaries from the States. But Thompson is the first um, black missionary that, that, that we're aware of. That's fantastic. So the, the place of honor really is for the missionaries, those that are leading the mission. Yes. And now that you have a, was that inspiring for the locals? Now that you have a, a black missionary from Jamaica sitting, you know, being active in mission. Yes. Was that somewhat inspiring for them? Did that play Actually, a role? We don't, we, don't, know. we don't know. We, we just don't even know his name. We don't even know his name. We only know his initials because that's how he publishes in church paper. Uh -huh. And anyone who knows anything about Adventist history knows that even up until the 70s, Adventists were always known by their initials. J.N. Andrews, J.N. Loughborough, right. right. A.G. Daniels, W.A. Spicer, people, J.L. McElhaney, uh -huh. uh, F.D. Nickel, you know, one could go, people are always known just by their initials. Um, and so, yeah, we just don't know how local people responded, but we can imagine that it must have been inspiring them to say, sure. here's somebody who looks like me. Yeah. Okay. Um, so what happened to the Thompsons? In October 1910, 12 months after the Simba photo was taken, Thompson was back in Sierra Leone supervising mission work on an island called Sherbro, where an Adventist presence had only been established a few months earlier. So clearly he was a trusted worker because they're putting him in a place where they're just opening up the work. And the fact that he's trusted is evident, too, in the fact that only a few months later he was sent back to Axim, which is one of their important outposts, following the death of Catherine French. Okay. So he gets, so th this is somebody they trust. And in less than a year after he returns to Axim, Thompson won some 30 converts. Wow. Which, you know, today in the days of public evangelism mightn't seem like a lot, but back then when he's working and probably doing it all on personal visits, it's in a very, it's very impressive. Yeah. Uh, he yeah. was, in fact, he would have been one of the chief soul winners in the whole West African mission. Why wasn't he ordained, um, given his track record? Probably because he was, in the language of the time, colored. Really? And missionaries were supposed to be white, and probably they didn't ordain him for that reason. They, they did ordain African-American ministers back in America, but he's working in as a missionary, and so the only way we can explain it, I think, is, is by the racial prejudice, which Adventists did suffer from in this period. Um, did, was Dauphin, uh, Dauphin uh, ordained? Dolphin was never ordained. I see. And we're going to come back to him in a minute, but first let me finish the story of, of Thompson. Yes. He suffered something called Bright's disease, which affects the kidneys. And he went to Sierra Leone to seek treatment, but to no avail, and he died in Freetown on March 25, 1912, leaving his wife a widow. So there's another story of missionary sacrifice for the cause of mission in the Gold Coast. Um, but as you say, the church today in Ghana is flourishing, and the flourishing, rapidly growing church in Ghana today wouldn't exist without the sacrifices of those early missionaries. Yeah, it, and, and their sacrifice was not measured in direct results at the time, because if you take the first few years, I, I presume you don't have you know tens of thousands, maybe you don't even have thousands. Right. Um, you, have, you have a few believers here and there Yes. Which is always the frustrating part of starting a work. Uh, that it seems that the curve is always an exponential curve. Yeah. Uh, not a linear curve. So it's very hard at the beginning. It's an L curve. <laughs> it's a, yeah, it's an L curve. That's right. Yeah, no, that's right. Okay, so let's go back to the guy that we started with, um, uh, Francis. 
yep. doping. What happened to him? Somewhere around 1910, he retired from Adventist work. He went back to Apam, where he lived under the care of his daughter. He died there somewhere between 1910 and 1914. We don't even know when exactly. But today, historians of Adventism in Ghana and West Africa acknowledge that Francis Dolphin's Sabbath-keeping group, stemming from reading Adventist tracts, was the beginning of Seventh-day Adventist mission in West Africa. That is brilliant. Okay, now, where can people go to read more about all of this? They can read the articles about Francis and about David Babcock in the Encyclopedia of Seventh-day Adventists, or the ESDA. That's available at encyclopedia.adventist.org. That's encyclopedia.adventist.org. Brilliant. Well, David, I think we're going to wrap up here. So thank you for this conversation about missionaries to Africa. Well, to find out more about Adventist mission, and of course, all the missionaries and what's happening today, just go to AdventistMission.org. AdventistMission.org. The link, if you're watching this on YouTube, is uh, in the description. Thank you for joining us on this brief journey through the history of Adventist missionaries. If you've enjoyed this video and you're interested in anything related to the Adventist Church, well, this is the channel to subscribe to. By subscribing, you'll have access to a wealth of inspiring content that will connect you to Jesus, including worship resources, mission stories, and health and wellness tips. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button and turn on notifications so that you never miss a video. Well, thank you for watching and we'll see you on the next episode.